Hey, this is Brent here at the top of the episode. I want to just tell you that this episode, we recorded it a little bit over a week ago. And within two days, all the information was basically already outdated. That's how quick the world's moving. And we just didn't have enough time to get it edited. Jason was on vacation, and neither Kareem or I had enough time to sit down and do it. So it was then edited. It's about to be released, and things have changed. So I'm just throwing this on here because if I were to tell you what has changed at the front of the episode, it's not going to make any sense. So stay tuned toward the back of the episode. I'm going to attach just a little addendum on. There's not going to be much in the way of discussion. Just tell you what happened after we recorded the episode. It's hard to analyze and it's hard to grasp. Like I understand what Brent is saying. Like there hasn't been significant changes to the Ethereum code base, but to the ecosystem that lives on top of that, there's been tremendous change. Change that is creating entirely new dynamics that we didn't really see before and that are probably the beginning of something very serious in the world of finance, I think. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem Baruke. I'm here with my co-hosts, Brent Philbin. What's up, what's up? And Adam Ruthless Sleevy. Is this thing on? Are we? Are we? Is this? Is this a podcast? Is that what we're doing? Are we are we're recording? Uh, we are recording indeed. All right. And I guess Adam there is referencing the fact that it has probably been a while since you've gotten to hear us talk a little bit. The reality is the last episode sometime in July. <laughs> yeah, we've been we've definitely been on a big hiatus. Uh, it involved. Some of us getting jobs, schedules getting mixed up, there being a lull, COVID, all that stuff. After talking about it internally, I think we've decided we definitely want to keep things going, but it's just not going to be as regular, maybe not shooting for this weekly kind of show where we're sometimes scrambling for content, but maybe go down to like once a month and, you know, having a chance to go more in depth with some interesting topics. Uh, You know, we talked about a little more in the Discord, but Anything else you guys want to say in relation to that, Brent? Yeah, well, I will say that I currently feel like a like a crotchety old man in the space where <laughs> I don't know what happened in the last month, but I don't understand any of it. So I, I legitimately see all this stuff and I'm like, what? Like, what is all of this food? And I listen, this is different than the Crypto Basic podcast that we started. And uh, I don't want to be um, I don't want to be Peter Schiff. So. So, so I'm here <laughs> helping everybody record. All right. So, yeah. So this is this is pretty interesting because we got to give credit for today's episode to Adam, who dropped a bomb on us uh, a few days ago on our little internal Discord. And it all started with a simple question. Adam, you said, do you like sushi? <laughs> and it felt like, uh, I was like, well, I do like sushi, but where is this going? Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, man, it's been a crazy uh, like brent said it's been a crazy month or so like i think DeFi i saw a stat that maybe there was decentralized finance is kind of where all this stems from and we saw i saw a stat a couple maybe a week and a half ago that was like DeFi took a year to get into 1 billion locked up within it and now i think i saw earlier today it's at 8 billion or something and the and the tweet was from like a week and a half ago that was 6 billion locked up so money is just flying into this, you know, and uh, I guess part of it was started with this thing called yams, 
that ended up being like a they like didn't it ended up it it wasn't a scam Brent but it definitely <laughs> there was a big it was unaudited it kind of and I remember the um I actually saw a tweet from the guy who created it and he was just like I'm gutted uh what happened was I guess in the Uniswap pool there was like a some curve which is another coin that's just like, where is this coming from? I don't Whoa. know. But, yeah. <laughs> You're diving right into the meat of the oh. bone, Adam. We're, we're doing, having the appetizer here. The, yeah, we're just sorry. introducing them to this. This is the start- amuse-bouche. Okay, amuse-bouche, well, yes. Well, sushi is a, a yield farming. Sorry, I got a little carried away here. Sushi is yield farming, yeah. which is a new term that I didn't know about a couple weeks ago. And you basically can earn sushi. By just like putting some, uh, I still don't really get it. hundred percent. All right, so right, listen, I got to tell you guys before you before you move on. Adam's message was, "Do you guys like sushi?" And I think that that has made me even more crotchety because I fucking love sushi. And I went in there thinking that he was showing us like a new sushi box delivery <laughs> or like some cool way that I can eat sushi. And instead, it's whatever the hell this is. And I'm like, no, what do you mean? I don't want virtual sushi i want real sushi yeah all right so here's basically the situation adam shared this sushi project with us that he was able to find and participate in and the returns that were being delivered were just what we would consider absurd right but like any kind of traditional finance metric we would say wow these returns are near impossible so anybody who listens to the podcast can assume where my mind and Brent's mind went immediately like, oh, this has to be a scam of some sort, right? Or like, what's the catch kind of thing? So Adam, you made me go dive deep into the (laughs) world of DeFi because I just couldn't understand it and I wanted to have a better understanding of it. So I decided to stop on the surface of this is probably a scam. Although (laughs) I did try to like connect my MetaMask to the Sushi protocol and it wanted $110 to finish the transaction. Right. So you're going to through the which, roof. Which, Brent, this is actually... This I mean, is, look, there's no question that this is a craze. But the fact that Ethereum fees right now are the highest, some of the highest that they've ever been. That no, no, by the far the highest they've ever been, even well outside of 2017. Right. And Yeah, but the fact that now this is still creating this much activity and demand, even though fees are so high, just gives you an idea of the fire that's kind of burning here. So this was the catalyst for today's episode. And Adam has had more hands-on experience with a lot of these projects. So the way we're going to do it is we're going to give you guys a quick breakdown of some of what was learned by trying to look into like, okay, what is exactly happening with these projects? What is DeFi? What is really yield farming? And then we'll talk about specific projects and Adam will give us some more specifics. Okay. Okay. All right, guys. So let's start with some of the basics. What is yield farming? I mean, I guess we could start this conversation with a broader question of what is decentralized finance in the first place? But, you know, then we could just basically keep going back on and on and we could maybe do an, a later episode just about all of the concepts. But what, the, what, is the, what is the meaning of life? I mean, yeah, right. we can just sure. keep going back all the way there. <laughs> we do, what are we going back? The closest what? we have to an episode on DeFi is the episode we did on Maker. Uh, that's right. That is the Which is yeah. That's and that's... and Maker is one of the players here. And what's interesting is that's like one of the starting building blocks because what we're yep. seeing with a lot of these projects, guys, is that there's now so many projects like Maker, 
that can be used and leveraged in different ways. So what yield farming essentially is, is you have all of these decentralized finance strategies to make money, right? To, to try to use your money to make some kind of interest on that. It could be by lending money. It could be by participating in something called a liquidity pool, which we've talked about. So yield farming is essentially, instead of just taking the passive strategy of picking one, oh, I'm going to put my Tether or my Bitcoin in this thing and lend it out, yield farming is essentially the gamification of that process where people are moving funds around to whatever protocol is giving them the most return on investment at that moment. Because a lot of these protocols, essentially, the return on the demand that they can give you is dependent on market pressures. So if mm-hmm. a lot of people are borrowing Ethereum, then somebody who's lending Ethereum in, a, in an Ethereum platform, it's not going to get as much interest uh, as, as somebody who's borrowing like an asset that, let's say, not a lot of people have to lend, but a lot of people want to borrow, right? Their supply and demand is what I'm saying here. So essentially, yield farming is looking around at all the different protocols and manipulating your investments and moving them around to constantly be wherever the biggest return on investment is at the moment, right? So we can call wow. that no loyalty whatsoever. These people, no loyalty whatsoever. And, and in theory, that's great. You know, that is awesome that you could uh, do that. However, when you start realizing they're going to like, this isn't for a small bag, basically. When you say, hey, I'm going to put $50 and I'm just going to earn 15% APY, you know, and then you have to spend $30 on fees just to get it in through Ethereum right now. It really is not, uh, it, it is, it's just not a profitable endeavor. But no, obviously, sure. if you're doing it with more money, then it becomes profitable. Right, because the fixed cost, uh, the fee itself becomes a much smaller part of your percentage, right? So there's a lot of protocols that are being used for this. There's Compound, there's Curve, there's Synthetics, there's Uniswap, Balancer, like Maker, for example, is used in a lot of ways as well. So that's kind of like the general idea. Now, something to keep in mind is that some of the protocols, like this could have been done by hand. But some of the protocols are precisely trying to automate this process, right? So like when you look at something like urine finance, a lot of the urine finance uh, financial products are smart contracts that are essentially trying to do this high return seeking themselves. So you're still just doing the passive strategy or depositing your money and you have this smart contract that depending on what they built, right? Like some of them are focusing on lending. Some of them are focused on providing liquidity. Some of them are focused on specific trading pairs or whatever. So there's a lot of options, okay? So urine are- is Wi-Fi, right? Yes. Okay, yes. I just this just, just crotchy old man checking in here. I saw a video on YouTube that was the Wi-Fi waifu army. For those who are <laughs> unaware, waifus are like weird sexualized pillows, I think, or maybe they are people in anime. I don't know, but that it was a thing. So Cool. You said, you, stopped, you said, wait, Brent, I thought you said you stopped at the rabbit hole because this sure sounds like a fucking rabbit hole that you went in. I didn't mean to see yeah, it. Yeah, he Twitter. went down a different rabbit like, hole. Wow, yeah. He wasn't yeah. so interested in the dynamics like, of the Hold whole on a minute, thing. guys. Yeah. I mean, zip. No, yeah, I don't know. It was one of those like really shitty crypto content people. I think I ended up watching the Korean Jews page for a little bit. I think it might have been there. I, I don't remember where it came from, but. I, I watched his page because remember that guy that was like the super scammer, uh, like 
Bitcoin fund manager or whatever from back in the day, just like the the one weird Asian dude that if you went to his page, it was the most obvious scam of all time. We covered it on the show. I, I really wish you remembered it. But anyway, like the, he interviewed that guy. So it was like one guy who I thought was a moron interviewing a guy that I knew was a scammer. And it actually was super interesting. Anyway, but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the rabbit hole that I went down that ended up finding the Wi-Fi way. I mean, that sounds like the definition of a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And listen, one of the interesting things that I do want to mention about this, because we're going to get to why some of these strategies ended up yielding returns that are insane. And it actually has more to do, in my opinion, with irrational markets than it does with scammy protocols. Because so far, what we've discussed so far doesn't seem that crazy, right? Okay, let's let's just move our capital from one place to another. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of traditional ways of doing this in the real world, right? Right, like, arbitraging or whatever. Ex- exactly. Yeah. This is basically arbitrage. This is interest yielding arbitrage. It's ex- it's essentially what they're doing. Even like the process of switching protocols is called crop rotation. Is what the yield farmers refer to it as, right? <laughs> so it's like if you re- if you think about it, so far we haven't covered anything. Now, something to keep in mind is that when you're jumping around multiple things that are built on other things, there each additional layer creates additional risk because you could have a flaw anywhere in the system, right? So if you're using a protocol that has four smart contracts that are built on top of each other that are relating to two different stable coins that are connected to a whatever blockchain, well, now you have a bunch of ways that this system can be attacked. Something can fail. One of the smart contracts can fail. One of the currencies can fail. There could be a hack of the liquidity pool, et cetera, et cetera. But so far, we haven't really seen anything that makes it almost shady or absurd. So let's go specifically into... We talked about lending. I want to give a little bit more depth about what a liquidity pool is and how they make money, right? And the first thing that we have to think about is that in our traditional markets right now, if you want to go buy stock, if you want to go to Coinbase, if you want to go to Binance, even though you might not notice it as a user, they are all implementing something called the market maker because they all use the order book model. And the order book model essentially says... I go to, let's say, to sell Bitcoin, and I say, I'm willing to sell Bitcoin for this much. And Brent goes there, and he's trying to buy Bitcoin. He might say, I'm willing to buy Bitcoin at 100 And me, Kareem, I'm willing to sell Bitcoin at $120. Well, we're not, we're not meeting in between. And it turns out that if there's nobody that's willing to sell or buy for a closer to the middle range, then the market becomes illiquid. We're kind of stuck there, waiting for somebody to make an offer that somebody's willing to accept. So then... Coinbase and Binance and the New York Stock Exchange, they have something called market makers. So Adam, if Adam was to make the market maker, he might say, hey, listen, I'll always be willing to buy or sell Bitcoin at, at the midpoint between the best bid and the best ask, right? So if Kareem's offering uh, Bitcoin for 120 and Brent wants to buy for 100, I'm willing to sell Bitcoin to anybody for 110, always without questions. You're the market maker, right? You're the one that's ensuring that I can just press a button on Coinbase whenever I want and be able to get, sell, or buy Bitcoin without having to rely on anybody else out there wanting that trade. Does that make sense so far? Right, going into the order book. Yeah, that's that's placing a market order for the user experience, and that's what they're getting out of that. Right. But there's a bunch of things. like That person who is providing, who's being the market maker, has a lot of functions. They have to be willing to put up the capital. They have to be able to track prices in order to know what they're going to charge. They have to be able to remove prices. They have to reference outside exchanges so they're not getting 
arbitrage to death, right? There's a bunch of things that they have to do. So there's a real question of like, how do we bring this into a DeFi space where there isn't a, a centralized entity, right? Like Coinbase, it's just like this decentralized process. How can we have a market maker? And this is where liquidity pools come in. Essentially, the liquidity pool offers an opportunity to investors and says, okay, Brent or Adam, since you're the liquidity, since you were going to be the market maker, now what we want you to do is to supply to this giant pool of money an equal amount of two assets, an equal value. So if we were talking about Bitcoin and dollars, being able to buy and sell Bitcoin for dollars, then Adam could supply $100 worth of dollars and $100 worth of Bitcoin. He's supplying an equal amount to this one pool, giant pool of money. So now anybody can come into the pool of money because it's pooled with other people's investments, all of them having contributed equal amounts. And now I can buy or sell Bitcoin or dollars because the pool always has that amount. And the part where the investment comes in is that the liquidity pool itself charges a trading fee. If I buy $100 worth of Bitcoin with dollars, it's going to charge me a fee in dollars. And if I buy dollars with Bitcoin, it's going to charge me a fee in Bitcoin. All of those fees are accumulated and distributed amongst the people who provided liquidity, right? So essentially, what a liquidity pool is, is going to a decentralized exchange and having a smart contract that has the ability to supply liquidity to the market, to be the market maker for a decentralized exchange. And in return, those people are able to make a return on investment by collecting trading fees. Which is the key backbone to needing to being able to run a decentralized exchange. But as we've talked about in other episodes about decentralized exchanges, where we run into problems is no cryptocurrency can handle the number of transactions needed to run an exchange. If everything is going to be on the Ethereum virtual computer or whatever, any some other well, smart contract platform, it, we've run into that. So have they tried it? Like, there's right, no so way you can have that many transactions. So they've got to have something to solve that. That's kind of the point here, Brent, that a lot of these protocols are having the trade happen kind of on their platform. They are creating the independent platform. So like when you're trading with this liquidity pool, that's another reason why the market makers weren't able to really exist in Ethereum in the same way because all of these transaction fees, if you are a market maker, you have to constantly submit different price orders and remove different price orders, right? Because the price is changing. You can't do that on Ethereum. You go broke with all of the fees. So this pool is being created, handling, which is able to handle Ethereum and USD or USD and Bitcoin or using some of these stable coins, but they're kind of their own protocol. Like that is what like Uniswap or, or Curve or Synthetics or Compound, that's what they're trying to provide, like that mechanism where you can have a high volume of transactions directly with that liquidity pool, for example, or with other users. And so, so they're giving everybody food to lure them to their platform. No, that's, well, that's, you, that's different. That's, that we haven't gotten really to that yet. I mean, Uniswap, you're not earning anything. At least I've just, Uniswap, I've just been using it as like a, you know, exactly that. Like, just like, hey, I need a certain coin or whatever. I'm just going to swap it on here. And um, whereas like, I'm not pooling anything. Whoever's pooling it, it maybe is making money. Or, you know, whoever's providing the market is making money. And maybe I can, 
now that I've actually added liquidity with all these other ones. But, um, you know. Well, and that's the thing, guys. That there's two different processes coming here because the, the other thing that I wanted to show here is that this additional step that we just mentioned, it's still pretty straightforward. It's traditional. Think about it. You're pulling, in the example of a Bitcoin USDT, for example, pool, right? You're charging fees in Bitcoin or USDT. The fees are only 0.3%. That gets distributed to the people in the pool at an equal percentage. So far, that shouldn't sound like it's anything crazy that would be able to yield absurd interest rates, right? So this is where we get to the um, something came into the system that the market responded to possibly in an irrational way and is creating this wave of absurd returns. And that's liquidity minting. So that is what you just referenced, Brent, but it's kind of separate because a liquidity pool just says, hey, you provide liquidity to this market you get to benefit from the trading fees of that market. The smart contract is just pulling everybody's money together. That in and of itself doesn't have that much of a big deal. But Also, there- just to throw in there, everybody knows that when you add mint to food, it makes it worse. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this turns out with sushi. Incorrect. Incorrect. Yeah, incorrect. Uh, Mojitos are better sure, with buddy. mint. Salads are better with mint, like a cucumber Salads mint salad. Salads are better with mint? What? Have you ever had a cucumber mint salad that has yeah. other ingredients? Man, well, I would... Yeah, trust me, fantastic. All right, all right. So what is liquidity minting? Essentially, what some of these protocols started doing, right? It's apparently Synthetics was one of the first ones that did this. But they wanted to have A, a governance token, which would allow the people who hold the token to govern the direction of the pool. Because remember, these are protocols. Just like any other blockchain or just like any other project that you might be interested in, they have protocols that determine, for example, how are the algorithms used? How do they balance the pools? How much trading fees? Blah, blah, blah. So just in the same way that somebody who has a Cardano or Ethereum or Dash would want to be able to vote or participate in the direction that the protocol is going to take, what some of these projects started doing is thinking, okay, let's have a token that represents the governance potential of our protocol that it's mainly used to determine the direction of the protocol. However, we can also use that token to incentivize people to participate in certain of our pools in certain ways. So let's say, for example, that I'm one of these protocols and I say, wow, look, we have tons and tons of money in the USDT Bitcoin trading pair pool. Everybody has USDT, everybody has Bitcoin or die Bitcoin, right? There's tons of money there. But when it comes to something more, a little bit more obscure, like maybe Neo slash NEM, whatever, maybe <laughs> that trading pool, you know, has decent activity, but not enough liquidity. So then they started thinking, okay, so we will reward you more governance tokens for providing liquidity to this pool. Each pool is still just collecting its trading fees. But now an additional incentive an additional thing is coming into the picture, which is this governance token, which should have no inherent value, right? Because it's it's not like all it is, is determining the direction of the protocol. It doesn't give you transaction fees, right? Like having the synthetic token wasn't giving you transaction fees on those liquidity pools. Being part of the liquidity pool is what got you transaction fee share. But by participating in the pool, you got this token that could be sold in the open market and here's where the kind of bug in the system breaks a little bit. 
the market started valuing those tokens at high valuations. Even in, even in the cases where I believe uh, it was the Wi-Fi token, the guy who created it comes out and says, these tokens don't have any value. They will only be used for governance. The value here is zero. You could say that to the market, but if somebody's willing to pay $5 for it, then it's worth $5. Well, and if somebody's vote. willing... You know, like think about how much a vote would be worth if a politician could legitimately just pay for it in the United States. Yeah, but the thing is, though, that let's be real. The majority of people that are bidding this up are not even necessarily buying it because they want to have a say in the direction of the network. And we know this, by the way, because some of these projects that handed out their governance tokens are having the problem that they can't get governance decisions done because the majority of the network's not participating. So they don't have enough, for example, pledged tokens for one or the other proposal. Right? I love it. They can't get a quorum because everybody's speculating on their votes. Exactly. So literally, it seems like this is one of those things where an irrational market took this governance token and started kind of maybe bidding it up for different reasons. And people see it bidding up and there's entire probably spectrums or markets out there that are just bidding up tokens that are going up. Maybe there's algorithms, maybe there's automatic trading, maybe there's just FOMO. There's all kinds of different things that make these tokens spike up. So now when you look at that, you can think to yourself, wow, okay, so I could make trading fees because this is where the ridiculous return on investment comes, right? You could say, oh, by providing liquidity to this pool, I should be getting 5% on my money because that's what the trading fees average, let's say. But now you're also, for participating in that pool, getting this token, which was worth 15 cents, but it's now worth $30. Well, guess what? If it's worth $30 and you got one token and your initial investment was 100 bucks, well, now you're making 30% return on investment, plus the investment that you were getting from the trading fees. You see what I'm saying? So these kind of things start building off each other. And since people have designed and like, gamified the process of yield farming and able to find like the best protocols and exploit it in the best way, then as these tokens change prices and boost and whatever, there's basically massive influxes of capital that are able to come in and exploit. And that's how you get these ridiculous 90%, 80%, 100% return on investment in a year. And again, it's not because the protocol itself is a scam. I mean, it could have it could be risky, maybe it's dangerous, but it's because the market chose to give significant value to a token that was used, but that doesn't necessarily represent that value and it's being distributed. But if people are willing to give it that value, it's kind of like, you know. <laughs> so philosophically, what's the difference between the market giving that value and the market giving Bitcoin value? If I'm a non-coiner that doesn't understand the market or, or the network effect, mm -hmm. I could say the same thing. Like, what do you mean? Bitcoin's worthless. And you're going to say to right. me, well, people are willing to pay for it. So it's not worthless then. So you, also can't vote, you also can't vote with Bitcoin. <laughs> right. But Bitcoin has a ton of value propositions that these yeah. tokens don't really have. That's fair. But that's the point, though. Like, look, we're now entering something that I think is not limited to our space. Because right now, all over the world, there are tons of people arguing with each other about whether Tesla is overvalued or not, whether it makes sense that, you know, they are worth more than like basically the top three or four auto companies. And we're talking about future revenues and future potential. I'm not saying that this is the same thing as Tesla. Obviously, Tesla is a unique company. What I'm saying is the argument about how to properly value something and whether something's overvalued or worthless or it's not something that's even been solved in traditional markets. So forget about trying to really wrap our brain around it 
in this like new emerging market. So <laughs> real quick, I just kind of want to go down just to, before we go into some of the specifics that Adam has participated in, I want to give a few more examples of how these programs are able to get these return on investments that are ridiculous. So not only are we talking about these, the liquidity minting, where you're getting this token, that's a governance token, right? Um, there's also leverage that these farmers are using. So what they can do is essentially get a leverage loan. And then, so in the example of uh, Maker, Brent, one could, for example, put uh, one Ethereum down, right? And maybe Woro borrow 1.5 Ethereum's worth of DAI. And they were, the smart contract would liquidate you if the Ethereum price falls below a certain amount because then you don't have enough money to cover. So it's right. kind of like it's it makes it so that if Ethereum goes down in value, you have a very short time window to repay that loan. But as long as Ethereum remains constant, you could borrow 1.5 Ethereum against it, right? For example. Yeah. So now what some of these farmers are doing is they'll take one Ethereum and then they'll use one of these protocols like Maker to borrow 1.5 Ethereum's worth of let's say die and then they'll use that 1.5 and use it on a different protocol to leverage that in itself and get <laughs> 2.25 let's say right so now they have leveraged themselves 2x so they have maybe two and a half times as much capital as they had before and then they go and put that in a liquidity pool well you put in two and a half times as much as what you actually had that means you're getting two and a half much as many trading fees, you're getting two and a half as much of the governance token. So now if your return on investment would have been 28, 29, 30%, but you are managed to two and a half, three exit because you leveraged it. What does that mean? Well, that means you're getting, exactly. So now you're getting 90, 100% because it's 30, but on three times the amount of capital or two and a half times the amount of capital. And that's how we see these 80%, 90%, 75%, 100% return on investment. Here's the trick. All of those additional layers of return come with additional layers of risk. You're over-collateralized. That means any of your smart contracts can go into liquidation by one of the assets that you put up as collateral going down in value. And that can have a cascading effect like we've seen in stock market crashes. So, so I, I do want to just uh, kind of jump in because uh, the, I actually have been kind of dabbling with that a little bit. And this is stuff that you really need to be well-versed, like technically in, you know, like, because I'm kind of like, sometimes I just click buttons and all of a sudden um, I'm, I don't like the transaction fees and stuff right now. So yesterday I ended up, uh, I did put some in compound and I was like, you know what? I'm going to get my compound for the day because you gain it by just having, by like saying you're going to supply or whatever and and uh, borrow some. It was a $100 transaction fee for $2 worth of compound. And I'm, and granted, yeah, obviously I should have checked it. But like sometimes <laughs> like you don't, you don't even realize what you're doing. So I just am trying to like slow everyone down. It is pretty cool. And yeah, I, I took that L there. But that happens and it's like, a, it's worth it. It's not worth it, but it's important to know that these things are kind of, this is advanced stuff. And also Ethereum dropped like 50 points yesterday at one point. And it wasn't that far away from getting liquidated. And I do want to clarify, because in my head, I thought liquidation meant, hey, if it goes past this number, like you just, you, it goes to zero, like you just lose all of it. 
Because, I mean, I've never really been like a finance guy. Regard, You know, I wasn't really that big in the stock market. Never, you know, I didn't ever graduate college, never like really took any classes on economics or anything. So it is important to just clarify that liquidation just means it's a percentage that, you know, you're going to lose. Not necessarily all of it. Right. It's a hefty percentage, though. It's like 13 or 15. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, if it goes, basically, if you borrow... Let's just say you borrow ten thousand dollars, ten thousand. Um, like you put ETH in compound, you borrow ten thousand, and you get die. And you you can set the the level of leverage that you want, or the level of like your liquidation rate. But it, yeah, that could be a big chunk if it goes to ninety percent of what like you bought like ETH at, or even if it drops to fifty percent, which is probably won't happen. But it is just worth noting that this is high risk. You know, it's it's very high risk. And I think it's important to note that it's high risk for multiple reasons, because, look, it's not about, like the catch, quote unquote, the catch is always somewhere. There are multiple attack vectors here, or I shouldn't even say an attack vector. What It's just risk, because, number one, collateralization, as you just mentioned, Adam, is a risk. The price of Ethereum goes down. You have these loans that are like two to one or whatever. So small movements in price can cost you significant amounts of money. That's number one. But number two, a lot of these things are built on layered smart contracts, smart contracts that are relying on other smart contracts. Some of these are using multiple protocols. So you are relying on the fact that all of the different smart contracts that your uh, farming activity is participating in are executing properly. And we've seen in the case of Yam, how some errors, it wasn't in a smart contract necessarily, but yeah, some errors can have catastrophic consequences. So that's another one. And now the other one is that a lot of this is using liquidity pools, mining pools, whatever. Guess what that attracts? Hacking potential. Because if somebody, if the coding for that pool wasn't done very, very rigorously, the more money that is in that pool, the more that it becomes like what happened with the Ethereum DAO, right? There was just this one address with a ton of Ethereum and somebody figured out how to get it out. So I guess my question is, and this is something that I've been wondering since everyone says, you know, you could get hacked or whatever. I don't really understand how, I mean, and this is more curiosity and just uh, not understanding it. How do you get MetaMask hacked? How would they, you're staking a coin. You know, you still have full control. You can always stop it at any point. So that's what's confusing to me. No, so when I say, for example, a hack, I'm not so much saying like, okay, Adam, you are running the risk that they will break into your wallet, use your private keys to withdraw the amount and send it to themselves. What I'm saying is, if you're participating in this giant pool of money that is an automated machine that's just basically performing a bunch of functions based on the way it was programmed, and now it has millions and millions of dollars, if somebody who's really, really skilled analyzes that machine's code and is able to figure out a way or a parameter or a situation in which they can control something that it does, they might be able to trick that machine, that pool of money into sending them money. And all of the participants get screwed. If you have right. if you have 1% and I get the machine to send me all the Ethereum and then within minutes it's converted to Monero or something untraceable, mm. what are you or anybody going to do about it? Anybody who participated in that pool is screwed. Your investment, your returns, whatever. Now, if it's properly done, if the security is good, then that shouldn't happen. But we have seen before that that's not an easy thing to do. The people who created it need to have a certain amount of foresight. 
There needs to be some kind of external audit. This is all I'm saying. And, and the biggest point here is that the bigger the money pool is, the juicier the price and the higher level skill of individuals that we're going to see. Because you have your hackers that are like, hey, I'm a kid in my basement. You have your hackers that are like professional groups. And you have your hackers that are state level actors like North Korea, who is able to invest millions of dollars into extracting crypto and they do it openly, right? Or or in China or in Russia. So think about it. If you get one pool of money that's worth $50 million worth of Ethereum or $50 million worth of DAI, you think there's not going to be some very talented people figuring out how they can, right? Especially so if they know it's not audited. Right. No, exactly. So that's a problem. That is a risk factor, let's say. Right. And it's one of the things that I use when I'm talking to people about Bitcoin who don't know about Bitcoin, right? Because that's where I'm oftentimes talking to people. They're like, well, it can just get hacked. And, and I'm like, yeah, I understand that you're going to think that about any program that's out there. But the incentive to hack, quote unquote, the Bitcoin network has been so high for so long that we can be 99.99% certain that it can't be done right? <laughs> in its current iteration. So that's and, why it's so difficult for Bitcoin to change things. And it's important to emphasize the fact that when we're dealing with smart contracts, you have a different layer of it's not as immutable and protected as the blockchain. Because right. in order to quote unquote hack Bitcoin or in order to quote unquote hack Ethereum, right, which is probably not even the right term, but in order to manipulate that entire blockchain, you would have to cheat the miners all the entire pool, which is why we call it like a 51% attack, because you have to have a majority in order to manipulate things in the direction that you want to manipulate them. That is not the case with a smart contract. The smart contract exists on the blockchain, but if the smart contract was coded with some kind of error or attack vector or whatever, or bug, then that smart contract can be tricked and it doesn't require tricking the entire Ethereum blockchain. So, for instance, uh, Oyster Pearl, we can go back to that thing. That was essentially a backdoor that was put into in unaudited code that uh, Bruno Blocks moron. He set it up so that he could steal the money. It got through. Nobody noticed it. And then he decided to steal the money and do the exit scam. So there's that. That's why uh, one of the tweets about sushi that I shared inside our private discord was that it had, it had at least 10 errors in the code. Which I shared that, and then Adam pointed out that they were they said that they're errors, but none of them were fatal. So it's like, where does this stop? And the, even in Maker, there was a big uh, error in the code. Maker, I would say, is the number one de- uh, decentralized finance, right? I, I could be wrong on that. It might not be anymore at, because of all these restaurants that are opening. But <laughs> the, but Maker was at one point the number one, and it liquidated the fuck out of people. Yeah. So and and we covered that the reason. This is definitely uncharted territory that we're going through. I would expect there to be, you know, s- some issues that arise. Um, but as long as it's nothing, I mean, I think when I uh, looked at that article, it was like 10 of them, five were medium and the rest were kind of just like uh, very low risk. And, uh, you know, there's just this is just there are going to be mistakes made. Maker can't predict every you can't. I mean, Vitalik never could have predicted DeFi. And then. I mean, maybe he could have, you know, maybe that's not that much of a leap. But then to predict that, like, now we have Uniswap and yield farming and all these things, it's just like, you know, sometimes things get away from you and you just don't know how things are going to interact. So mistakes are going to happen. Look, this is whatever ends up happening. I would like to hear some more about the specifics, Adam, some of the stuff you've done, some of the projects you've played around with. But I look, 
at the end here, I want to talk about YAM a little bit. You know that our angle is always caution, risk assessment, be on the lookout for scams, be on the lookout for this stuff, because you know this space is rife with irrational exuberance and scammers. But I think it's undeniable, undeniable that we are witnessing the birth of something new in the crypto space. Like when we were talking about like in the past about how crypto could change things and stuff, I mean, guys, the decentralized exchange volume is starting to like, it's surpassing Coinbase. Right. That is huge. History, I, it's I'm absurd. It's nuts. It's nuts. And, and with Ethereum charging completely clogged, completely clogged, <laughs> right? Which there's a couple of ways to view this. One argument we can make is, well, clearly people are totally irrational. People are completely exuberant and we should be cautious. That is a fair argument to make. Another truth, though, is that it also means that people are valuing the freedom that decentralized exchanges place above the absorbent fees. They're saying, I would rather pay a $30 transaction fee than go through a centralized exchange for this trading pair. It's probably some sort of combination. I think that the reason the, the protocols exist is the first type of person. And the reason the fees are so high is the second type of person in this case. Uh, you know, they're, most people aren't paying $30 because they value their decentralization. They're, they're looking at it as I can pay this $30 to get $60 worth of sushi. I might as well, might as well kind of thing. Yeah, but then they're essentially paying like an upfront fee or a giant upcharge and being early participants. Now, Guys, it's worth noting too that this is all baby money. That's the crazy part. That like even though it feels very like holy crap, look at all this money, it's like five billion, seven billion, eight billion. But when we're talking about markets, that's nothing. It's literally nothing. Asset management companies are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It would it would take like one major asset management company to allocate a small percentage of their portfolio to some kind of decentralized exchange. To double the market cap here, and just to show that, like, we're literally just this is baby steps, like the ICO phase. This is like the wild, wild west of DeFi, but I really think we're seeing the true birth of DeFi right now. And and just to kind of iter, uh, you know, talk about that, there's been a lot of yeah iterations uh, with this forks. So yeah. Uniswap started that was open source, so they let you know, people build upon it. Yams then probably was, you know, kind of that. Like Yams was a little, I think, a little different than the other ones. But Sushi Swap is legitimately a fork of Uniswap. And then there, yeah. yeah, and then there's other things that I'm seeing now. And then it's like Sushi Swap. And there's also Tendies, which I'm not so much, I don't know much as much about that, but it's similar to Yams, I think. And then there's also Sushi Swap. And I guess, you know, which I know nothing about that. But there's this new one that so was you called. You don't know. I don't know. You know. Uh, and then there's this new one called Kimchi, which is just like now oh we're getting God. we're getting a little too far down this path where it's a fork of those two, and this that one's offering thirty five thousand API on certain ones, or you know, and it's like, okay, this is getting to be wild. How is that possible or sustainable? And then there's ones in the like that like that chat, you know, like I started looking at it and I was like, what is going on here? And then there's people in there being like, hey, come to this one that'll a hundred thousand API. And you're like, what? Okay. Look, this is 
<laughs> a lot of them look kind of absurd. From the research I did so far, it seems like there's a couple that seem kind of serious. Compounds, synthetics, Uniswap, uh, Balancer, they seem to like be providing legit products. Maybe they're overvalued, maybe they're whatever, but I'm saying like they seem like they're creating new things. But what Adam is saying is true. There's a lot of iterations and a lot of them need a lot of iterations because even like we didn't really... We just scratched the surface of liquidity pools. Yeah. And how these liquidity pools actually work. And they need different algorithms. For example, when they have trading pairs that have different value and fluctuate compared to trading pairs that like, let's say you're trying to trade assets that are the same, <clears throat> like wrapped Ethereum and Ethereum or USDT and DAI, which are both supposed to be one or like all of these things. There's so many variations and the market's obviously going to shake out a lot of this garbage. But it's important to remember that it's also because people are willing because these tokens are being given value. And what we saw with Yam is precisely that that token can go to zero value very quickly, right? Which is why that kind of return on investment seems hazy. Like, yeah, the return on investment is 35000 as long as you could tell, get this token, go out there and sell it for the price that it's currently at, which is a big if, right? So I want to just quickly talk about the differences between like Yam and then Sushi Swap and stuff. So Yam, basically all you're doing is you're just putting in, you know, let's say you put in DAI and you just let it build. You know, you just, you attach it to it and eventually you get some Yams. And then those Yams, like uh, that was the whole issue was that you can use those to vote and try to get a quorum. And that was the thing why it was kind of a debacle where we can talk about it a little bit later. But Sushi Swap, is cool in that I like it because it was a lot of steps also. So you're basically taking like you get like a pool of let's say you go into Uniswap and you say, hey, I want ETH and I want DAI. And you make that you add liquidity. You have to get like equal amounts of the same. So let's say you go a thousand Ethereum in USD and a thousand in DAI. And then you just add that pool and now you have like a portion of that pool that you're now earning like sushi from. So because you're providing liquidity to sushi, now you can, uh, you know, you have this like ETH die kind of sushi. Like, I, I, it's like, forget what the coin is called exactly, but it's basically like a pool coin that you then can split off. And, and like, once you decide to harvest your sushi, you can get, then like break that up and get your ETH and die back. So it's, I think I think that's just pretty cool that you can, provide liquidity whereas yams is a little more about the I, I don't think sushi really sushi swap has any voting or there's no governance uh, from what no. i saw yeah but, my understanding of sushi swap adam is that they basically copied uniswap but they they just decided to give a bigger reward to the liquidity providers so they basically look at looked at the uniswap code and they're like all right we'll do which is an open source code and they said, we'll do exactly this, but change the parameters a little bit, have more rewards. And it was almost saying like, okay, we'll try to take all this liquidity from you right off the bat and with more rewards. And then the sushi token that they were giving, again, had a price in the open market, which, by the way, this is something very important that I want to make clear. For those of you that are even considering entering this kind of game that can be called yield farming, the best advice I can give you is never, ever, ever buy a token that is mined by liquidity providers. Like you can farm it, 
but you should never buy it because it seems to me like that's one of the the biggest chinks here, right? People are buying sushi when liquidity providers are getting sushi on top of their service charge for free in order to incentivize them. And it's almost like the bag holders, the person that's buying sushi here. So you should just, if you participate in one of these farming projects and you want to farm something, it's, you know, do your research, analyze the risk, but never buy a token that was farmed. That, that would be my biggest piece of advice. So here's why they are. I'm going to tell you why people are doing it. I, I, I just went to this sushiswap.org slash farms, right? And you can see the different things. You can see like tether turtle, deposit USDT slash ETH and earn sushi or whatever, blah, blah, blah. That one's got a 550% annual percentage yield. Uh, you know, something very reasonable. Uh, that's their, <laughs> their lowest percent. Uh, and, and of course, they're calculating that based on the value of the sushi, right? So why is this? Why the fuck are people buying the sushi? The reason is because the one of these that yields the most return by far is the one that is the sushi swap sushi one. So you need to deposit sushi in Ethereum to get 1738% return, which is more than three times what you can get by using Tether in, in Ethereum. So if you're right. looking at that and you're just like, hmm, why would I ever use this one? Why here's this one? That's why people are buying the sushi because like they can get three times as much sushi on their sushi if they do it right. that way. So it's like, yeah. And it becomes know. a tornado because there's people all over the world that don't even know what DeFi is, but that they are going through coin market cap or something and they see this token that has been going up in value for the last four days and they want to FOMO in, right? But all right, you guys want a quick overview of what actually what really happened with Yam, just so you can see like how things can go wrong, even in some. Yeah, that should situation. definitely be uh, you know highlighted because I was a, a big part of. I mean, yeah, it, it it was definitely a big issue, and you should definitely know how things go poorly. I'll tell you my crotchety version of what happened with Yams. Okay, I looked, I saw the ridiculous returns. I said, well, that has to be a scam. I, I posted in our Discord and I said, hey, somebody like point me in the direction of what's going on with yams. I think we want to do a red flags episode on yams because to me, that was just like an obvious scam, right? Obvious scam is obvious. And by the time I even started to research it, it had gone to zero. And I just assumed I was right without actually doing the research. So I'm about to learn what really happened and whether I am actually a lyrical genius or not. <laughs> Well, Brent, we all know that no matter what I say next, you are a genius. But other than that, <laughs> here's what did happen. I thought this was interesting and I wanted to share because it wasn't your typical story. It did fail because of pure execution, but it's not what you think, actually, you know, and it kind of caught me off guard. So here's the idea. Yam was supposed to be one of these protocols and they had some good concepts the YAM itself was going to be used for uh, as a governance token. YAM was going to have a treasury that they were going to be able to direct the direction. And like many of these projects, they have these liquidity pools and they were going to incentivize people to participate in some of those liquidity pools and give them YAM on top of those fees, right? So same old thing. It had been developed for 10 days before it launched. All right? This is one of the things, I'm serious. And in a funny way, I get it in the sense that the space is moving so fast that anybody with an idea, anybody that looks at a protocol and thinks they could do something slightly better, is probably rushing to get their project out. You know, the one thing 
I'm going to throw in my uh, little <laughs> Cardano reference here that I do every yeah. episode. But <laughs> when, you know, when this whole thing broke down, one of the things Charles said was, this is why we use formal methods. This is why Cardano is so slow. But formal methods is a system that makes sure that everything you intend in your code actually plays out that way in practice. Right. It's tedious. It's a pain in the ass. It was but, the number one thing everybody makes fun of Cardano for, you know, like, oh, are they ever going to have a product? You know? Well, if you actually want to go to a company the size of Wells Fargo or Berkshire Hathaway or some kind of asset management company that has the billions and billions from some prince in Iran and some tech genius in California, you, you can't have a stupid bug in your code that's going to crash everything, right? Right. So that's the situation. right? So it was only 10 days in development. They launched early in August. It was like August 11th. I mean, this all happened very quickly. So right off the bat, they followed the president of the Wi-Fi token, which, believe it or not, is considered a very fair token in the way that it was launched. Why? Because it had no pre-mine, no founder share, no VC capital. They didn't go to a bunch of rich people first and say, hey, you guys can buy it at a discount. It was simply whoever is participating in the liquidity pools, they're going to get a proportional share of YAM. And that's how YAM was going to be distributed initially. So literally, the people using the protocol are the ones that are going to get the governance of the protocol and the story. So far, so good. These are good concepts. If you were reading that, you would say, hey, these guys are trying to do the right thing. Money starts pouring in. Lots of money starts pouring in. So they have eight different liquidity pools and that they're going to fire off. And people see the potential returns because, again, they're going to make money off of the trading fees and they're going to make money off of the YAM. And the YAM project looks good. So people start bidding up the, the token and they're going to distribute it to all these people, et cetera. Okay. They get $600 million worth of capital locked up in all of these liquidity pools. Okay. So far, there wasn't a formal audit. There hadn't been a formal audit. But of course, members of the community started looking at the smart contracts and they were looking at the things that you would expect, the most important ones, the liquidity pool itself, where the, how the money's being moved around. They didn't find any problems. However, there was a bug found in the system like a day after launching it. And it wasn't any kind of a smart contract failure, leakage or anything like that. But it was about the way that the YAM token would be minted at the point of like near a governance model. But essentially what would happen is there was going to be too much YAM that was minted in such a way that they would never be able to reach quorum. They would never be able to make a governance decision. And if they weren't able to make any governance decisions, then all of the money that was going to the treasury was just going to end up stuck there, right? <laughs> because the way these protocols work is, hey, we make a proposal, we vote on it. If enough votes come in, then that person gets the money from the treasury. This is how Dash right. works. This is how Cardano is going to work. Okay, so that part made sense. But they found a bug that was going to make it impossible for them to reach that conclusion. So all of a sudden, the community is in a panic. Uh, and they're like trying to figure out what they can do. And they have a deadline. I don't know if it's the equivalent of a block or something like that, but it's called a, um, I don't remember the exact name of it, but they basically had a, a deadline to put in a proposal to try to change it. And once that like block or whatever happened that was in the smart contract happened, it was Wait, undoable. Are you, are you thinking of rebasing or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. It was the second rebase. Yeah, Thank you I very forgot, much. I forgot to mention YAM it rebases, which is something entirely different from SushiSwap and all these other ones that are forking. 
Oh, right. Oh, is the rebase the thing where it adjusts the supply? Okay. Yeah. 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 Like basically every 12 hours it would increase in price. And then like, if you like, uh, then it would come back down after the rebase. Right. And then you, if you looked at your yam, like heart, like your what balance you would earn, would it would go down slightly because I don't really understand how rebasing works, obviously, but I do remember now that you, you triggered my memory. The rebasing is essentially uh, yam is an elastic currency. So what it does is it basically, Based on its price, it would either increase the supply or decrease the supply, but it would do it equally amongst all wallets. So if there are more yam minted, the overall supply would kind of adapt so that you still own the same percentage of yams that you did before. It's based on like another project that's doing something similar. But here's the important part. The second rebasing was coming up in literally 24 hours. And if they didn't get it, the proposal in by then, they weren't going to be able to change it. So all of the kind of information started pouring out. People were trying to raise the money together saying, hey, here's this proposal. We got to get it in tomorrow before 8 a.m. They needed 160,000 yam to be delegated in favor of this proposal, right? And they started telling out of all of the liquidity pools, all of them would be fine except for the liquidity pool that also had yam in it. So they were trying to tell the people in that liquidity pool, hey, you should probably withdraw your funds because they could be at risk. But all of the other liquidity pools, like if you provided Ethereum DAI, your money wasn't at risk. There was just a problem with the YAM protocol. The smart contract holding the money is fine. Finally, literally with one hour left or something like that, they managed to get enough votes to change the proposal. And it was at that point that they discovered that there was another bug which wouldn't allow proposals to be submitted. Oh, man. So. The second rebate was coming up literally in a few minutes. That was the deadline. Everybody who knew anything and was participating understood that within a few minutes, they would be locked out of it forever. They would never be able to do proposals. The treasury money would never be able to be touched. And that is why within a matter of minutes, the market price of YAM crashed to basically nothing. Because all of these people that had expectations about the protocol, the value, the future value, whatever in a matter of minutes, saw the protocol become completely worthless. All of the money for the, the pools were able to be refunded. Like People were able to withdraw from their liquidity pools. But the people who had YAM and weren't able to sell it obviously lost all that value. And the people who didn't withdraw their the liquidity pool that involved YAM, those people also lost money. So, you know, this is... And the reason I want to tell this story is because it's not the type of mistake that we would think of. Oh, a hack or the contract gave the money to this or the founder ran away. No, it was some good ideas. It was some good community work by some people. It was some uncalculated risk. It was an attack vector that people didn't expect, a governance failure. Again, going back to like, why is Cardano, why did they spend you know, so many hours and so much research and formal methods and all this stuff trying to focus on how does a proposal work? How do people vote? How do you incentivize people to vote? These are things that take a lot of time that projects have to think about. And even though some of the base concepts here were decent, you saw the whole thing come crashing down in a matter of minutes. So just to clarify a little bit, yeah, basically they had 35 minutes. It was a yam curve pool. You kept saying yam. I was like, I thought it was curve, but yeah, it was both. Right, you're so, right. The pool that had yam was the one that was yeah. at risk. So, yeah. and and just to kind of circle back, almost just because like I'm getting it now, is that literally what you're doing on SushiSwap is you could be creating a yam curve pool. 
That's kind of what you're doing. But the, in this case, Yam, it wasn't about that. But also, they did say to just hold on to the coins. But a lot of people panicked. Um, they said, just harvest your yams. Hold on. We're going to have yam version two out. And then within five days, they had a new version of it. That did right. it. I don't. I don't think it had rebase. Uh, it was a lot different. And uh, but like now they're kind of they got it audited. Also, they basically they realized their flaw was not. Getting they made it some audited. big mistakes. Yeah, of course, of course, that's gonna happen. But it it is okay. That's gonna happen depending on it the strategy happen. But that like, we employ. Yeah. No, look, it's. I'm not even trying to sound preachy here because it's not. The bottom line is there are some benefits to moving fast and breaking things. There are some benefits to being very cautious and doing your research. Every path that we take has trade-offs, right? And I understand why there might be an incentive here to get on the ground running, especially if you're using code that maybe has been tried in different ways. Like I bet you that the people who made this use some kind of smart contract architecture that existed in some of these other protocols, and they felt pretty confident, and maybe they didn't even really think about the potential of a governance failure. Like you wouldn't think that a uh, oh a bug in your proposal is going to completely destroy your protocol that's really focused <laughs> on liquidity pools. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everything is interconnected and it's very complex and complicated and like um you know it's everything has trade-offs. You know, so it's an interesting case study at the very least. There's yeah. so many not just in crypto, so many times in life you find where people found like a system went and did something and somebody found an exploit or started doing something and you look back and you're like man that's kind of obvious how did they not see that coming you know like the like the crash in 2008 with like the the real estate market you look back on that and you're like how did they not see that coming the reason they didn't see that coming is because this stuff is not easy to predict it's easy to look back on and be like oh these morons with their governance or whatever they how could they have not seen that but right. beforehand they were just like imagine being in the meeting the day that you figure that out and you're just like, no, I, uh, this is going to happen. And if we don't fucking get everybody together before this time, this is going to happen. You somehow fucking Braveheart that shit and you get everybody together and you're like about <laughs> to do it. Freedom! And you're like, yeah. press the button. Yeah. You're like, it didn't work. It didn't work. What the fuck? Yeah, but yes. Brent, this is kind of what the argument was. Uh, me and Brent talked about it for like 15 minutes yesterday in the bigger picture. Like, yeah, obviously these you know, you can't really see it happening. But I remember just thinking there are signs you can look for that are just like when my when I was like waiting tables and like all of a sudden the Olive Garden manager that like is above me is getting into real estate, you know, and he's like buying houses and stuff. It's like kind of like, wait, why are they giving loans to some dude who's like barely making more money than me or whatever? You know, like there's a lot of questions you can ask yourself why, you know, and right now I I try to ask myself these questions as well. But apparently it's because interest rates are low and stuff. And it's kind of like poker where you can kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit, you know, like in tournaments, eventually you, you keep stacking and getting expected value. Eventually you're going to win a tournament. But if you keep seeing these signs that so you're like, oh, wait, that's a bad sign. Like that's one sign. This is another sign. This is another sign. I believe that something's going to fall. You know, I believe the economy is going to crumble. Like, it might not happen the day that you expected it to happen, but like, you should trust those kind of gut instincts. And I'm sure yeah, there were some I'm, people, but sorry, in 2008 who definitely saw it coming. 
Yeah, but you know what the problem there too is, Adam, is like there were people that saw it coming years ahead of time. Bet on it. And, and it took years. Yeah, right, exactly. True. And and this is the situation right now. Everybody, or let's say, quote unquote, the big short everybody. guy basically was scamming people at that point. He wouldn't let them take their money out of that fund when it was crashing. And he's just like, no, I'm sure I'm right. He ended up being right, but like, if he had been wrong, we would call him a a huge douche, right? He lost everybody's money when you were trying to withdraw it, right? It's nuts. And and look, right now, if people think that the markets are being inflated, but we have no idea how long this can maintain. Yeah. And also, what I do want to say was uh, me and Brent got into, you know, just like a discussion. Brent was like, we're, and granted, I don't want to say, hey, we're in a bull market, like, you know, invest or, hey, we're in a bear market, take money out or whatever. But I will say that DeFi, now all these things that are popping up and stuff, it feels a lot different than 2017, where it was a bunch of ICOs. We were hoping. There was a lot of hype. We were thinking, hey, this project's going to be sick. But now the projects are sick. You know, and Brent was like, well, it existed. The tools existed in 2017. And I was saying like, yeah, sure. But they like, it was still very early on. And here we are. We're seeing a lot of the tools being used. Like DeFi is an incredible innovation. Ethereum schools today are the same as they were in in 2017. Like you, right? But we're um, not betting on the tools, right? Yeah. That, and that's the reality that these well, net- the best they were offering at the time was Crypto Kitties, right? Sure. But that's the thing. But we're not, and that's what makes the, this whole thing so interesting. Is the value comes from the ecosystem, and the more complex the ecosystem gets, the more services that are provided. But then the more things that start getting interconnected and then you see the value, but you see all these new problems start coming up and it's like, <laughs> it's hard to analyze and it's hard to grasp. Like, I understand what Brent is saying. Like, there hasn't been significant changes to the Ethereum code base, but to the ecosystem that lives on top of that, there's been tremendous change. Change that is creating entirely new dynamics that we didn't really see before and that are probably the beginning of something very serious in the world of finance, I think. How long it takes for that to mature, I don't know. This is all beginnings of the world of finance. That, that's kind of why we're here, right? Like we we all see the the piece, the the building blocks of the puzzle, and we we see the potential. We've always seen the potential. We don't know what it's going to be. I promise you, two years from now, in 2022, we're going to be laughing about yams and sushi and whatever, or maybe one of them is just like normal at the time. But we will we'll look back on this and think that it's pretty funny. But there will be something new that makes it look funny. There's going to be something 10 times better that's safer, that's doing something, creating even more value. That's And even like the dumb blockchain games. Think about we've got like those whatever those were called, the, the Ponzi scheme games. I don't know if they're still there, but those were almost a precursor to Wi-Fi also like or to decentralized finance also because they were decentralized Ponzi schemes like they they were. Hi, I'm a Ponzi scheme. If you'd like to participate, click here. <laughs> and they had auditable smart contracts that showed their Ponzi schemes. But they showed that something like this is possible and they're proof of concept. And CryptoKitties is a proof of concept. And things they build, they go and they get better and better as they go. Like yeah. you didn't, it, the first time you made a website when you were on GeoCities in 1998 looks a lot different than making Squarespace websites today. And that's just from the base user standpoint. No, I agree completely. And honestly, guys, uh, I will say that going down this rabbit hole, we probably should cover more DeFi in the future. And we will, you know, we'll do some more updates 
but going through and trying to understand the different protocols because I was really digging around with all the different ones. And there's just so much creativity, man. There's so much innovation that's happening. And it's exciting to just kind of project that forward because it's a reminder that you literally cannot imagine what other smart people are going to come up with. You just have no clue. And it's just going to be all these cool, awesome projects. And the more that they're built on, the more that new ideas come on and people are going to borrow from that. And it's just super exciting. And uh, we'll be here for some of it. We might not be here for some of it. I don't know. So, the <laughs> you know, like we said, I, I gave a longer explanation in the Discord. So if you want to pop in and kind of read that, whatever. We just don't have the time to do as many episodes of this as we used to. So we're going to put them out when we have something that we know we can be passionate about and talk about like this episode today. Although I say we, these guys, more or less, I was just like, yeah, I'll come and like bullshit with you guys. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck this is all about. Yeah, this is what it is. I'm the guy who finds it. I early adopt. And then Kareem just like we just listen to Kareem uh, talk about it for 45 minutes. And occasionally <laughs> Brent makes a poop joke. And then we uh, <laughs> we move on with our lives. Pretty much how it works. <laughs> so you did drop uh, a bomb on me, Adam. I'm glad I'm glad you did, though, because it was a great reminder of like, I need to stay fresh, you know, because. I have my own biases. Like if I find a couple of good projects and I run out of money to invest, I'm just kind of like, all right, nothing else for me to, I'm not going to keep reading every, every new ICO that comes up. I don't care. For but, sure. But this was a reminder that like, Hey, there's really interesting stuff happening. You know, don't. Yeah. It's pretty damn cool. Plug. Yeah. Don't go, don't go super crotchety old man on all of it That's for no right. reason. That's right. Uh, another, another crotchety old man moment. I, I happened to pop onto coin market cap to look at some things. I've been using Delta. So like Delta is like one of the apps on your phone. And I go on CoinMarketCap randomly to look up something. And I see in the top five of market cap, there's this thing called Dot. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? So I look on Delta and it's not even on there. And I'm like, what? wait, what the hell? So there's just this entire top five coin that literally came out of nowhere that I knew nothing about. <laughs> that's called Polkadot. That's created by one of the Ethereum founders, right? Polkadot? Uh, yeah, Gavin Polkadot. Wood. He, I think he was the CTO early on, and he got out and started his own thing. He also was, uh, I guess he started Parity, and then there was like a massive security flaw that happened there. And, yep. you know, they ended Parity. up like locking up a bunch of uh, like millions. He's so, one of the OGs, right? Yeah, he's yeah. definitely an OG. And uh, I think this is his kind of bet against Ethereum. Maybe we'll do an episode on it because, I, so I popped on to I think Kraken. we should. Unrelated, yeah. I popped on to Kraken to look at like rebalancing because Cardano and Ethereum had taken such a big jump. I can't rebalance Ethereum because sending it to Kraken will cost me fucking, you know, a legitimate point per, part of my portfolio. But they literally gave me a pop-up that was like, oh, here's like this information about Polkadot. I'm like, how did they know? Ah! And and it said that it, apparently it did some sort of reverse split or split or whatever. And they have staking built right into the system where you can stake Polkadot and get 12% returns on the exchange of Kraken, which is the one that I trust the most. So I was like, well, okay, I guess I should probably learn about this thing at some point. I don't know. (laughs) It's an interesting world. We have lots to learn. Uh, That's just a reminder that that's what we are. Just a couple of guys learning about crypto with you. So we'll keep an eye on this world and hit you guys with any cool updates. Probably Polkadot will be one of them. Yeah. Definitely. In the meantime, we're still, you know, we still chat in Discord. We still tweet every now and then, going around doing our things. So you can follow us on all those on all those little platforms and sections and stuff like that. 
All right. Well, have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed this non-financial advice. Non-financial. Yeah, we are not. We are not financial advisors. We'll let you know next time Adam drops a bomb on the group. So, yeah, after all that, if you were following what's going on here with Sushi, things got a little crazy. So, a couple of days after we recorded that, Chef Nomi, the guy who kind of ran Sushi, created Sushi, an anonymous guy, went ahead and sold a bunch of the developer fund and completely crashed the project, right? Took the rest of Kana Crypto with it for a couple of days there, and... Then said, oh, well, there was no law against me taking profits out of this, so you guys should have checked the code kind of thing. And then he, I guess, started to feel bad and transferred control of the contract over to Sam Bankman-Fried. You'll remember him from a couple of years ago when Kareem and I went to Bangkok to speak at a conference. Sam was the one who was on stage with me and said that Tether was fully backed, totally cool, and said he just had inside sources or whatever. So we had him on the show. We talked to him about why. Seemed like he had his reasonable reasons. We still think what we think about Tether. But it was an interesting thing. I I didn't know really. I hadn't been following what he was still doing in the crypto space. He's not just running Alameda Research anymore. He's, uh, He's running a couple of other protocols so it was interesting as to why it was transferred to him i guess he was just one of the vocal people about what was going on with the sushi contract however there were a bunch of people in the community that thought they might have been the same person because it's super weird for this guy to just transfer control to a random person so that was going on there were conspiracy theories left and right and then this sushi guy chef nomi goes ahead and gives back the money that he took Uh, He transferred it all back in, maybe after using it to get some profits or whatever the case. And uh, yeah, he basically said he screwed up. He's sorry, et cetera, et cetera. So people seem to think somebody figured out who he was. And he went ahead and gave that back either because that was the condition for not releasing who he is or because he knew somebody was about to release who he is and he didn't want any criminal charges. So keep up to date on this stuff, this DeFi stuff. We said in this episode it is ridiculously scary and risky because things are changing at a moment's notice. We could not get this episode out fast enough, given we slacked on it, but we couldn't get it out fast enough to keep up with the changes. And if you're in this space and you're in here in DeFi, knees deep in sushi or or sashimi or nigiri or any other food... You've got to really be careful and up to date just because it's decentralized and there isn't a specific centralized exchange doesn't mean that you can't be stuck holding a bag if you didn't completely do your research here. We knew that there was the ability of this stuff to sell and, you know, Adam ended up, I think, breaking even after all this was said and done. Doesn't mean that sushi's a scam. It doesn't mean that anything i mean the protocol exists it's there just means that the developer didn't really have everyone's best interest at heart so definitely follow this stuff i can't promise we're going to be on top of it but if we are it'll be on uh, some sort of a youtube channel that either you know myself or crypto basic will release we'll keep you updated on whether we actually have the time or bandwidth to do something like that in the meantime stick around 
We've got the next show coming uh, whenever we have it coming. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.